Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Gary Goldman is the author of Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 1980s. Over 25 years in comedy, Gary Goldman has established himself as an eminent performer and peerless writer. A product of Boston, Goldman has been a scholarship college football player, an accountant, and a high school teacher. He has made countless television appearances as both a comedian and an actor. Goldman has made four masterful TV specials, including his most recent universally acclaimed stand-up special for HBO, The Great Depression, a tour de force look at mental illness, which is equal parts hilarious and inspiring. In 2019, he appeared in the international blockbuster Joker. He can most recently be seen co-starring with Amy Schumer in the hit Hulu comedy series, Life and Beth. Gary's first book is titled Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 1980s, a memoir based on his life from kindergarten through 12th grade. Amy Schumer, by the way, called the book Laugh Out Loud Funny and Heartfelt, and MacArthur Fellowship recipient Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc found it exquisite, love-affirming, and generous. Today, Goldman is one of the most popular touring comics selling out theaters around the country, including the prestigious Carnegie Hall in New York City. Gary's upcoming tour for Misfit will feature material based on his book, but not a repeat of the book. Gary lives in Harlem with his wife. Welcome, Gary. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Misfit Growing Up Awkward in the 1980s. 
It is a pleasure. Thank you. I, I love talking books in general and my book in particular. <laughs> well, today's your lucky day because <laughs> that's all you have to do. I love this title so much. I grew up in the 1980s. I'm 47, but oh, wow. I was just like, how many cultural references am I going to get? How much do I feel like I'm living here? And I, I feel like such nostalgia and warm feelings about the 80s. So it put me off on a, on a a in a good mood starting the book. And then of course, then there was the book. Me really happy. I'm glad. <laughs> so you, I want you to explain to listeners what the book is about, but you use this very interesting device where you're going back and forward in time and even choosing different fonts and showing us the depth of sort of despair contrasted with moments of time from your upbringing. Tell listeners, why did you do it this way? Why did you decide to write the book? And yeah, just your life in general. Go ahead. Initially, I wanted to write a book. They, I've, I've read several times, and I forget who's given credit for saying this, but write the book you wanted, you would want to read. And I always thought it would have been great to have read a book when I was growing up and and later about people who didn't fit in and and wherever they were, they were they were either either marginalized or bullied or or left out. So I was very. I was very athletic, but I didn't really feel comfortable around the kids who were jocks. And I was I was a good student, but I never really felt accepted by the by the really smart kids in class. And then I repeated the first grade. So when I went to first grade again, I was much bigger and more mature than those kids. So I didn't fit in there. And then in Hebrew school, which I covered some in the in the book, I felt I wasn't as religious or as as well off as a lot of the kids in Hebrew school. So it was just time after time I was I was left out or or marginalized in some cases bullied. And so I I, I wanted to give people something, people who were misfits growing up and also look back on that and say, oh, I I understand, I get it, and and also give some people some hope that eventually you will find your group and and you will find friends and and I found a spouse and and things worked out well for me. The book is set up it was originally called K through 12 so it's a memoir of kindergarten through 12th grade. Now the reason I was thinking about all these things so extensively was that when I was 46 years old I had what would be called a a, a major depressive episode in which I was hospitalized and received electroconvulsive therapy treatments. And I was I was sort of in a in a, a very difficult position in that I didn't know whether I was going to be able to work as a comedian anymore. And I was my lease was up, so I didn't have the energy to look for a new a new apartment. So I moved back to the home I grew up in in the 70s and 80s with my mom. And I happen to intersect with a lot of events and people that I had grown up with. And, and so this is why I had such an extensive time remembering and, and pining for a simpler time, but also remembering certain aspects of that simpler time, which that that made me who I am for better and and for worse. So that that, that was sort of the the impetus for collecting all these stories. And so in between each chapter from my childhood and and early adolescence, I reflect 
on this time when I was 46 and 47 living at my mom's house. And, and so that those, that's usually the jumping off point for each, for each chapter. I love how you say that a lot of, you know, addicts or people recovering hit bottom and, you know, hitting bottom for you could not go any lower than being back at, with your mom and your childhood home. (laughs) I, I had, I had been in the psych ward, which a lot of people would say, well, that is your bottom. No, my bottom was moved (laughs) back into the twin bed I had grown up in, uh, at my mom's house. And you're six five too. I'm surprised you even like fit in your bed, right? Aren't you six oh, five? Isn't that what you said? I, I I had to to sleep at an angle, and sometimes my my girlfriend at the time, now wife, she would visit, and we would we would have to use the Pythagorean theorem to arrange ourselves on that on that bed. But I, I usually got the hypotenuse, so I I felt pretty good. That's great. Geometry <laughs> made cool. <laughs> that's that's uh, chapter tenth, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to like laugh and make this seem light because so much of the book was really a period of of significant despair and hopelessness. And, you know, you talk about, you know, suicidal ideation and a lot of really heavy themes in here. There was one passage. Can I read this? Do you mind if I read like a little bit? No, oh, I, I love to hear my voice. Okay. <laughs> here I go then. You can just, when this comes out, you can just like put it on repeat or whatever. But anyway, this is just one from August, 2017. I wake up and check my iPhone seven. It's turning off and on and won't hold a charge. I don't know why this happens. This happens to my phone right now. But anyway, I'm distraught. Phone trouble, computer crashes, tax returns, and insurance claims are all features of a gauntlet of quotidian stressors that in my fragile state can sabotage the momentum of being awake and send me back for more of that sweet, sweet oblivion. I owe thousands of dollars in taxes that are months overdue. I have tens of thousands of dollars in denied insurance claims from my psych ward stay, and now the phone is dead. I'll need to spend more money than I can't afford to get a new one. I have to make a trip to the North Shore Mall. When I'm sick, it's painful to interact with people at stores. I feel dumb and dependent and meek. I'm also afraid of running into people I know. They'll ask me how I'm doing or what I've been up to, and I'll either have to lie or tell them better. I feel safe around shoelaces again, and you you should see all the kitchen knives they leave out. I'm sleeping in a twin bed at my mommy's house, but things are looking up. I park on the same side where my mom used to park where she worked at Murray's, blah, blah, blah. I'm anxious and self-conscious about my disheveled appearance, shorts with holes in them, wrinkled, ragged, Bob Dylan t-shirt. But I'm also thinking back wistfully about how at one time when I was only eight, I was a star here, the prince of what was then called the North Shore Shopping Center. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> How'd I do? Okay. Thank you. I. <laughs> it's interesting because I have two feelings. One is, oh my gosh, how did I ever survive that horrific time period? I was so anxious and and just so depressed. And then I I think, wow. I, not only did I get out of it, I I was able to discipline myself for over two and a half years to write it all down. And it and it doesn't. Uh, I, some things you you see or hear that you created, you cringe. And and that didn't sound so bad. So I'm very, I'm very grateful that I was able to pull that off. But yeah, I, I was going to places that I had gone to as a, as a child, but as a, an an adult and it, it was, it was nostalgic and I would get wistful, but also I would, I would yearn for that, for that innocent time when, yes, there's a whole, many paragraphs about how popular I was with the, with the people who worked at the, at the mall. My mom would, would let me loose at the mall while she worked at this uh, Hallmark store, greeting cards and stationery store at the mall. And I just, I, 
it, it was weird because I fit in there better than I did at school. I was I was only eight years old, but the teenagers and and some of the some of the empty nest moms who worked with my mom they they just adored me. So it was this it was this wonderful place that I was accepted and and almost like I was a a, a mascot. Well, I think you know it really speaks to the collective childhood, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you, we just all imagine ourselves to be something great or something interesting or whatever. And no one ever thinks like, well, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be more upset than I am right now as a child. Right. And so yeah. you have to sort of like come face to face with that. Not that you aren't successful. You're obviously quite successful in, in your ways, but it, I mean, from a, an emotional standpoint, even. Sure. No, that's a, that's a great point. And, and I, I think that part of Part of the good thing of moving back home was that there were people who were two of my friends had bought their mom's house in our neighborhood. So I was able to to visit with them. And that was very helpful. Sometimes we would just sit and watch watch basketball games, but other times we would we would go for walks. Or one friend had a landscaping company, and I remember helping him out with with clearing leaves and brush and things like that. So it was it was very therapeutic to be back there, but also it was a reminder of of yes, longing for to to escape and then finding yourself back back where it all started. Well, not to dwell on on the sad parts, but I was really drawn to the story of you overcoming all of that. So when we enter the story, you know, you're basically a mess and are having trouble even getting to your therapist, which was another heartbreaking scene, right? You just, you can't even like get the the minimum help that you need. But what happened from a, from a depressive episode standpoint before that? Had you almost had, had you had smaller depressive episodes? Did this come out of nowhere? How did this come into your life? Oh no, that's a, that's a great question that, that nobody has really asked me, but since I was seven, I would have these episodes and they were they were frequently associated with stressors in school or in in sports. And I would have two or three months where I was unproductive and and I would say I was I was dragging myself through life. So things were much more difficult than they had to be. And then at about forty five and a half, I started this episode that I I kept thinking well I usually come out of these after after 3 months and and it and it kept going and the medicines that I had used were not helpful and then about a year and a half or almost 2 years into it my my psychiatrist said why don't we why don't we admit you to the hospital and we'll we'll take care of you and 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 that sort of started the my recovery and and it took a lot longer than that to actually be myself what i would consider my my best self which is i i can, I can be quite charming and and happy and and active and productive and so from about the year and a half to two and a half years so i guess it, it was I moved back into my mom's in June and about October of that year. So about two and a half years into this episode, which is, I mean, eight times longer than they usually lasted. I I've felt myself. And I'll tell you, since then, I've been so healthy and also so grateful that I've gone out of my way to try and share this 
story and make people who are in the in the thick of it see some some hope and also know that they're not alone that there are other people who go through this and and i guess i i never thought i i was a person that people would say oh how can he be depressed he has a lot going for him but it it turns out that a lot of people feel feel some comfort in knowing that this was very helpful to me knowing that achievement or notoriety was not going to make me feel better about myself, that it was chemical and biological, and I couldn't achieve my way out of my feelings. I, I needed to get my my biology straight, and there was there was no shame in in not feeling great just because you had done some some good things. So that that was very helpful to me and I'm I'm very happy I'm able to pass that information along. It's great. It will be so helpful. I mean, it's just like any other disease, right? I mean, you don't. Right. No, exactly. Your mind, you know, you're in this whole bad loop where you, yeah. you know, beat yourself up for feeling bad. Exactly. The, most of the diseases don't come with that aspect where you where you blame yourself and and beat yourself up for for feeling that way. Yeah. Or question if it's a disease or if you're just like yes. having a hard yes. time or yeah. you know. It's all in my head and and yeah. yeah, I brought this on myself. Yeah. Yeah. I actually am on the board of an organization called the Child Mind Institute, and they're working on finding like a biomarker in kids that you can tell early on if you're wow. if you're prone to getting all of these things and to be on the lookout and then working on treatments for that. And so I find that really exciting. And have they found a biomarker for it? They're working on it. Okay. <laughs> and they right. have like this whole yeah. open source platform with all the, they've opened up the data. So everybody from all these different universities and wow. organizations are working together to to find what this is and how to, you know, help kids from a young age and set more people up for success. Amazing. Because I, I think just a diagnosis or an understanding from people back then would have been so helpful in in not blaming myself and also treating it yeah. before it became so so problematic. Yes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And 
it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help, and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. True. Okay, the comedy side. So <laughs> so while you're going through these periods, you're also building a stand-up career. And even while, even post this, coming out with the Great Depression, all of this stuff, turning all of your experience into something that people relate to and being able to perform. So how did you kind of navigate that like in the midst of everything and even before? Like this doesn't seem like a natural job from how you describe your childhood necessarily. Right. But I, I do think I, I made it clear in, in the book throughout my childhood, I did find so much comfort in solace in laughing with my family and friends and also making them laugh. And I, and I, I think I'm nearly certain that there is a boost of serotonin and dopamine when you, when you participate in laughter and when you make other people laugh, it just feels really great. So I was sort of in, in some cases self-medicating. And then in my recovery, I found it very helpful to go to the comedy shows, to be around people, other people who who knew me and also had similar interests to me. And then I would also, I would get on stage frequently, even when I was was just in the in the early stages of my recovery, I would get on stage and I I had to address the fact that I looked awful and that and that I frequently had just thrown on the the cleanest clothes I could find and I would I would say well I've been I've been very depressed and I would make jokes about having been in the hospital I I I got recognized by a patient when I was in the hospital and I told this story about how how I got recognized I would say have it have you ever been recognized in the psych ward and from TV and people would laugh and I would tell the story and it just it was helpful on so many levels. It was it was getting some feedback on my on my story that was very positive. People would say, "Oh, that I have a daughter, I have a I have a friend, or I've suffered from depression." That was incredibly helpful. And and what they don't tell you is that sharing your story is is not something that will make you feel worse. It will it will make you feel better, and it will make others feel better. So I I think. I think it also helps to reduce the stigma and makes people feel less alone. It's just it's it's just a a winner on all fronts. And and the other thing was that it was it was getting me to do the hardest thing at that time, which was to get out of the house and and be amongst the the living and 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 get some of that. There's also serotonin and just being around people and relating. So that that was immensely helpful. And and so I I, I built sort of a. a a, a routine of of getting up and walking my dogs and then making uh, breakfast for them and then feeding myself and and then eventually leaving the house later on in the in the day and exercising and 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 then the day was always finished by by going to this comedy club in Harvard Square called the Comedy Studio and I would perform there and it was just it was it was really all part of my my recovery routine. So funny. I've never really heard of 
performing comedy as like an antidepressant, essentially, right? I mean, yeah. people people look to self-medicate in a lot of not very productive ways, right? With drugs right. and drinking and, you know, all these other things. But I mean, this is a pretty sanctioned, healthy way to do it. <laughs> ah, it, it was, and I... I don't think it has to be stand-up comedy that gets you out of the house, but that was that was especially rewarding because it was all, it also happened to be my my vocation. But I I think that one of the things was that early on I was very tied to how the audience reacted, and that would affect my mood, and that that was not good, and that was part of the reason why I was having such a difficult time is that I I didn't feel. I was good enough as a as a comedian and I was able to figure out a way in which I would say you just have to get on stage whether it goes well or it doesn't go well the act of getting on stage is the is the success that's the that's the end point and you don't have to judge yourself and and that was that was so freeing and and of course once you're able to do that then you're you're not self-conscious and and you can do your best work but getting to that point was was difficult for me so i'm i'm very grateful that that i the the stars aligned and and the, the universe complied in my escape routine <laughs> oh my gosh you wrote about your dad a lot in the book especially as a young kid and your relationship with him and your brothers and all of that. And I saw in the acknowledgments when you said, you know, you know, dedicating it to him in heaven and, and all of that. How do you feel about having examined your relationship a little bit more with your dad, I'm assuming, than before you wrote the book and how you, how you feel about that now and, you know, just any general thoughts about it? Oh, that that's a that's a great question because that was one thing that was so helpful with the with the book and and I mean I'm I'm very enthusiastic about journaling and 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 writing memoir so I I always say even if you just stick it in a drawer keeping track of your your biography is really helpful and it, and it, it was very helpful in bringing some of these ideas and and events to my therapist every every Tuesday at one thirty and we would examine these things. <laughs> And I was able to get perspective. But one thing that I didn't anticipate with with my dad, I just really wanted to tell the stories in our relationship, was that he was a figure that was was negative initially, especially at the at the beginning of of one of the chapters. But he redeemed himself so beautifully, and I couldn't have planned it better if I was writing a novel. <laughs> he redeemed himself so beautifully and came through for me again and again. And so I, I think it was it was really helpful to to see that and also examine the the just the the nature of humanity, which is we're a mixed bag. We do some wonderful things. We do some really messed up things. And so I, I, I think it's it's sort of that that Walt Whitman, I contain multitudes and and not just I, but everybody I intersect with had had some great points and some negative points and and we we all we were all doing our our best and my, and my mom was it was another really interesting quirky character who who served me overall just as a as a great mom and yet there were there were points where i would say oh man she really she really messed up there but as a as a whole both my my parents and my and my brothers were were positive and and i'm really grateful for their their influence on on my life it's amazing well this is great because you know 
if you ever switch therapists, all you have to do is just hand them the book and you can be like, read this first and like, let me know when you're all caught up and then I'll come in. <laughs> so funny. That is really, that is really something I, I think about from time to time because I, I, I think, what if I had to get a new therapist? It would take weeks to bring them up to speed. And, and that's so funny. I wonder if they would, I, I would probably have to, I would probably have to reimburse them for the time they spent reading the backstory, but it would free me up. That's right. I remember I'm not in therapy right now, although I I should be, but whatever. But I was writing all these personal essays and I was like, why am I coming in here and just saying like, let me just read you this. You know, like now this is 10 minutes, 15 minutes. This is a waste. Like, can I just send these to you ahead of time? Yeah. (laughs) Or can I come in later? (laughs) Brilliant idea. Anyway, didn't really work out. Anyway, so from a writing perspective, what advice would you have for aspiring authors and people who want to go into their own experience to write memoir? I think it was very helpful to read a lot. And I I think Stephen King in a book called On Writing, which I would recommend, he says a a good writer is is a good reader or maybe a great writer is a great reader. So you have to read a lot. And in particular, I did write, read a lot of writing books and and particularly a, a book called Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. And then a book by Mary Carr about memoir writing. And those were were really helpful. And then there was this other book that a a woman had compiled of Kurt Vonnegut's speeches or anytime he had talked about writing and it's called Pity the Reader. And those those three were really, really helpful. And and so the the only thing is that I I found that at some point you're reading to avoid writing (laughs) and it's just another procrastination technique. So I, I, I had to say, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll read for an hour, but I have to, I have to then, then sit down at that point and, and write. And, and the, the most helpful routine that I was able to get to was this, this practice where I would say, okay, I will just write for 15 minutes and if I don't feel like writing anymore, I will stop. And invariably, I would keep going because I was I was giving myself a, a push through the hardest part, which is actually starting. So I would say do that. And then if you can, write for at least two hours in the morning. More if you can, less if you must. But you build up endurance. And you can't start by saying, all right, I'm going to write eight hours today. I don't, I don't know many people who can maintain that type of type of strenuous writing activity, but you can build up to longer than, than just an hour, but you can start with an hour. You can start with 15 minutes and then, and then build up. And, and I would say also that sometimes it's, you, you don't have the energy to create, but you do have the energy to revise or, or, or edit. And, and that can be something that you do later in the day, but find whatever routine works for you. And, and also know that your subconscious will do a lot of work work while you're sleeping and while you're not writing so that if you find a stumbling block that you're you're just not able to get over I found it really helpful to sleep on it and then I would I would go back to it the next day and almost without exception I would find a fix or at least make it better and get get towards the the end goal so I I would say that's my my writing advice and and I I think I think next time they they say you have to figure out how to write every book on its own. 
But I think next time I, I will be able to write it a little bit quicker because I, I won't fall into some of the pitfalls because I, I I noticed that it was really hard to skip one day. It was really easy to skip the second, third, fourth, and fifth day. So try try not to skip a day, even if you're just opening up your computer and reading what you read yesterday. That that I feel gets you into that that habit of of being a writer. That is excellent advice. Kind of similar to the gym, right? It's like you get out of the habit. It's so hard. Exactly like the gym. The hardest one to skip is that first day, and then it gets progressively easier. Yeah. All these tricks we have to play on ourselves. (laughs) It does. I know. You have to do it. Amazing. Well, Gary, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for... Your book. This was a pleasure. Thank you. I I I admire your podcast, and I, I it was a delight talking to you. So thank you so much for including me. My pleasure. All right. And reading my book. Thank you. No, that. it was great. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, that's great to hear. All right. Have a great day. Thanks again. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.